Recording in progress. I'd like to call the November 27th, 2023 regular meeting of the Shoreline City Council to order. Will you please join me in the flag salute? Pledge allegiance to the flag of the United, United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, nation under God, Will the clerk please call the roll? Mayor Scully. Present. Deputy Mayor Robertson. Here. Councilmember Ramsdale. Councilmember Mark. Present. Councilmember McConnell. Here. Councilmember Povey. Present. Councilmember Roberts. Aye. Here. Uh, Councilmember Ramsdale was unable to attend and asked that he be excused. Is there a motion? Yes, sir. All right. Second. Second. Moved. Right. Any objections? Councilmember Ramsdell is excused. Next up is approval of the agenda. Councilmember Mork has asked that consent item 7C be removed from the consent calendar to become uh, action item 8A. Other than that change, are there any other changes to the proposed agenda? All right, the agenda is adopted unanimously as uh, amended. And next up is Mr. Ellington's report. Good evening, Council. Heavy rains are returning later this week. Help us prevent flooding by clearing storm drains in your neighborhood of leaves and trash. Call the city at 206-801-2700 to report actively flooding roads or water flowing off roads and onto private property. And a reminder that free sandbags are available at Hamlin Park. Bring a shovel and fill up sandbags to take home to keep water out of your home or garage. More tips to protect your home are available at shorelinewa.gov forward slash storm ready. Rain or shine, join your neighbors and the Green City Partnership to celebrate Green Shoreline Day in our parks on Saturday. There will be volunteer work parties in 10 parks across the city. You'll be building our future forests for the next generation by planting native trees and shrubs, spreading mulch and removing invasive plants. Dress for the weather, most tools will be provided, but feel free to bring your own. To learn more and register, visit shoreline.greencitypartnership.org. And a reminder to our community that you have an opportunity to help shape Shoreline's future by sharing your thoughts in an online survey for the city comprehensive plan update. The comprehensive plan is a guide for the city's next 20 years, and we will need the community's input to help guide our future decision making. Learn more about the comprehensive plan update process and find a link to the survey at shorelinewa.gov forward slash 2044. The survey is open through December 10th. The winter porch light parade registration is now open and the map will go live on Friday. The cities of Bothell, Kenmore, Lake Forest Park and Shoreline are partnering to bring the event to North King County again this year light display in any type of space are welcome and encouraged. Register to share your light display with the city at bit.ly forward slash winter porch light parade. And finally, we don't have any other public meetings on the calendar this week, so we'll see you back here for our city council next Monday. For the full agenda and information on how to participate in or comment on all of our public meetings, visit the city's web calendar. And that concludes the city manager's report. Thank you. Next up is council reports. Are there any council reports? All right, seeing none, next on the agenda is public comment. This is an opportunity for members of the public to address us 
on items on the agenda or items of concern to the city. We have no one present in person, and I believe we have five people signed up remotely. We ask that you begin with your name and city of residence, and we limit comments to three minutes. Okay, first is Joe Levin. Uh, President Joe, uh, Joe Levine, uh, Shoreline. Um, thank you, Council. Uh, I'd like to comment on the uh, motion uh, this evening regarding 2024 legislative priorities for housing affordability, uh, specifically uh, to amend attachment A um, and, and just adding in on the fourth paragraph where it addresses uh, housing affordability and uh, where it talks about continue to support le legislation that addresses homelessness and increases equitable access to housing through such actions and measures that strengthen and better enforce statewide renter protections as well as incentives and support for local efforts to accommodate. And I'd like to add in existing housing and additional housing development, including affordable housing. And the reason to add in existing housing is I've been involved with affordable housing policy in the state for 20 years. I'm a private housing provider in the city of Shoreline for 20 years. And there, uh, in my discussions with state legislators for the past year and prior bills on uh, housing affordability, uh, my understanding is the legislators are now gonna be entertaining uh, incentives for existing housing providers in the 2024 legislation and looking at those bills uh, in ways to increase uh, housing affordability in addition to new development. And I would ask that that language be included in the um, in the uh, legislative priority you're proposed. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Levine. Kathleen Russell. Kathleen Russell, resident of Shoreline, on behalf of the Tree Preservation Code Team, agenda item 8A. We appreciate that sidewalk width is coming before council this evening, page 8A to 8A17. Our 2023 proposal for sidewalk width. Revise the existing regulation to stipulate all sidewalks shall be five to seven feet wide in single family and non-single family residential land use in all zoning districts R4 to R18 and above. This proposal supports the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions, GHG, and retains established trees. References and reasons for this proposal. One, the National Association of City Transportation Officials, NACTO, Annual Report 2021, letter from Executive Director about heat in the Northwest, that we must dra dramatically cut GHG, as everyone on council is aware. Note, NACTO is a city reference source. Two, the city of Shoreline as a participant in K4C working to reduce GHG. Three, the Climate Action Plan Strategy, CRP-1, be resilient to current and future climate impacts. Four, Climate Emergency Resolution 494. Five, 
the council's environmental goal. Six, shoreline site built environment states, more hard surfaces, sidewalks, roofs, all absorb the heats or the sun's heat, making hot temperatures feel even hotter. Seven, less sidewalk width will preserve more of shoreline's established trees, providing shade and carbon sequestration. NACTO research states that pedestrians have a safe and adequate place to walk on five to seven feet sidewalk width in residential settings and eight to 12 feet width in downtown or commercial areas. All of this information supports a residential sidewalk width in single family or non-single family R4 to R18 zones of less than eight feet wide. The five to seven feet width will be adequate and is environmentally appropriate. The five to seven feet sidewalk reduces GHG, retains trees, and supports the stated goals and objectives of the city. Please consider modifying the proposed code. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Russell. Keegan Bells. Hi, can you guys hear me? Yes, go ahead whenever you're ready. Hi, good evening, members of the city council. As a veteran who served our nation and sustained disabilities in the line of duty, I deeply cherish the constitutional rights. Thank you for allowing us to speak. Um, I enlisted in the United States Marine Corps driven by a profound sense of patriotism and my fellow, fellow service members and I took an oath to defend our nation against all threats, both foreign and domestic. However, it appears our national attention leans heavily towards international affairs, overshadowing the challenges we, we face right here at home. And upon my return from service, I grappled with financial challenges, receiving an initial disability compensation of only $284. I was not able to feed myself, let alone my family, since my disabilities from my military service keep me from gainful employment. It's striking to consider our president, Joe Biden, is committing treason by sending $75 billion in aid to Ukraine to kill European men, women, and children, while the residents of Maui, for instance, totaling around 165,000 residents, were just given $700 each, and that is only 0.153% of what he sent to Ukraine to kill women and children or the fact that we send $8 billion a year to Israel to commit war crimes instead of using that money to help our own people here. That is treason, and I'd like to draw attention to Section 18 of the United States Code 2381, which outlines the punishment for treason, and it states whoever owning allegiance to the United States levies war against them or adheres to their enemies, giving them aid or comfort within the United States or elsewhere, is guilty of treason and is punishable by death. And is a grave matter, and I believe it's essential to consider the implications of our actions, especially in the context of international aid and commitment over our own nation citizens. And after returning from military service, I felt a deep commitment to understand the challenges facing our nation given the oath I took. And this led me on a journey of research and I sought to understand the influences behind major decisions, including the vaccine mandates, the president administration, media ownership, school boards, and immigration policies. And I thought it was essential for any democratic society to critically examine the concentration of power and influence, and so I did. And if we observed a particular group dominating various sectors, it would naturally raise questions about representation and decision-making because you see, back in the 1950s, if all the people who had the leverage of power were mostly Italians, everyone would say that our country is ran by an organized crime gang using mafia tactics. But since it's now the dual citizenship Jews who are in the positions of power within my nation, it's considered to just be a coincidence. I learned a lot of this information at gtvflyers.com and I learned about how Israel destroyed the USS Liberty, leaving 34 of my brothers dead and another 
174 injured. And I learned how much influence the Jews had in 9-11 and how they have 80% of total control of our current president's administration and 96% immediate influence. And one thing I also learned that was shocking is a legal religious practice called mitzvah bepeh, where a Jewish, Jewish rabbi sucks the bloody penis of a child after circumcision. And many children have died from herpes because of this religious practice. And I'm absolutely terrified to walk my children near a synagogue due to this evil practice. Please do something about this. God bless you and thank you for letting me speak. Suzanne Soling. My name is Suzanne Soming, Shoreline resident on behalf of Save Shoreline Trees. There is significant tree loss in shoreline neighborhoods. By our latest count, in Richmond Highlands, more than 176 trees have been cut down for development. In Ridgecrest, a total of 52 trees were recently removed along 5th, 15th Avenue Northeast and the North 155th Phase Two pavement overlay project. According to the November 2023 update on the 15th Avenue Northeast project website, 18 trees were removed and there will be no tree replacements. We request tree replacements in the Ridgecrest neighborhood to help rebuild its tree canopy. In Parkwood, 419 trees were removed for the development, which does not include trees to be removed for the upcoming North 145th quarter or the North 148th non-motorized bridge projects. An additional 523 public trees are slated for removal. Also, this number is likely higher because the 2021 Arborist Report for the 145th Corridor Project measured trees that were 8 inches DBH for conifers and 12 inches DBH for deciduous. Now, since April 2022, the correct measurement for all significant trees, whether public or private, in shoreline is six inches DBH. Save Shoreline Trees requests that the 2021 Arbus Report for the North 145th Corridor Project be corrected with updated tree count before any trees are cut down. We also ask council to consider green space and pocket park opportunities in the Parkwood neighborhood near the multifamily developments for the benefit of the new residents. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Soming. Derek Blackwell. Hello, uh, this is Derek Blackwell. Uh, thank you so much for including me tonight at the last moment. I live nearby the Madeira development. Neighbors agree poor access will create traffic hazards. I'm persisting talking with you because we're out of options. Here's some of the communication with city staff from about a year ago. We had just learned about the deviations for the two driveways. Kate Lee wrote, most multifamily developments in Shoreline have only one access, which has resulted in little to no queuing or delay, even when buildings are fully occupied. I wrote, 
since a deviation has already been applied for, why couldn't the southern driveway also be available for normal use by residents? I'd assume this could not work because of the need for a driveway to be located 40 feet from a neighboring driveway. Is there some other reason this couldn't work? Eight's reply. Other multifamily projects, such as Paceline, a vehicle entrance off the east side near the interurban trail, Geo off Midvale, entrance from North 180th Street, and Malmo, entrance from North 152nd Street, all have one vehicle entrance to their respective garages. I wrote, all the construction projects you mentioned are considerably smaller than what's proposed for Madeira, 400 units, and Brea, 386 units. These are good examples of why the Madeira and Brea proposals are exceptional. Pace line, 122 units. The driveway to the entrance is approximately 36 feet wide, 50% wider than Linden Avenue North. So there's plenty of room for delivery vehicles to turn around. This is nothing like the plans proposed for Madeira and Brea to be located on a narrow two-lane street, 25 feet wide, which is nevertheless, quoting Randy Witt, an arterial and serves as an important connection for emergency vehicle response, trucks, buses, and relatively high volumes of traffic. GEO, 164 units, is a good example of much smarter planning than Madeira and is much more reasonably sized for the setting. GEO actually has two entrances, one located on the north side on North 180th Street, a little used side street, and another on the driveway off Meridian on the south side. The building is only about 250 feet long, so it's fairly easy for residents to get in and out. In comparison, Madeira is a very ill-conceived design. And I listed many reasons you've heard before. And then on three sides, only one garage entrance at the far end, near an intersection, Ronald Commons and the school bus stop, and people would have to drive a tenth of a mile underground. I finished, Malmo, 129 units, is less of a concern. If Madeira and Breyer were this small, I and others would not be contacting you. Possibly the same for Geo at 164 units. Thank you so much for hearing me, and thank you for all you do. Thank you, Mr. Blackwell. That concludes public comments. Next up is the consent calendar minus item 7C, Deputy Mayor. I move approval of the consent calendar as amended. Second. Okay. The clerk please call the vote. Deputy Mayor Robertson. Aye. Councilmember Mork. Aye. Councilmember McConnell. Aye. Councilmember Roberts. Aye. Councilmember Poby. Aye. And Mayor Scully. Aye. Next up is action item 8A, which is adoption of the City of Shoreline 2024 State Legislative Agenda. Mr. Ellington, I think you were going to present briefly. Yes, it's my understanding there's a question as to the relevance of having this agenda item and having this discussion um, with council. Um, I would say that our intergovernmental manager and our city lobbyists um, kind of identify the things that they have heard through the grapevine, as well as um, items that may not have been resolved during the last legislative session that may come up for discussion again, that this is an opportunity because it's so fast paced when the, the session actually starts to identify those with council to kind of get some direction and a feel from council on those particular topics. By no means is it all encompassing, um, but it is some of the items that they have heard could possibly be discussed during the legislative session. Um, so there are 
obviously items that are near and dear to the council that we are, we know about. So, for example, some of the comments that we received from the public as far as issues on trees, we know the position of council for those matters. Those matters are normally local matters and may not come up during the legislative session, but of course if they do, if we have time, we will come before council. But if not, we, we know the position of council and the support and the concern for the environment. Um, but again, this is just to kind of get some direction from council so that when the session starts, we're able to work quickly and be responsive to the items that come up during the session. I don't know if that answers your question. Thank you very much. I, I, that is exactly what I was hoping that we would all get um, some background for. Um, I really appreciate the citizens who made comments and I wanted to make sure that um, we understood how this fit in context with uh, the legislative the, legis the state legislature and this document. So thank you very much. That's, that is why I asked to have it removed so that we could uh, hear about what the purpose of this priority list is. I have no further changes. I just wanted to hear that. All right, do you have a motion? Yes, sir. I'm, I move that we approve the uh, legislative priorities. Second. All right, is there any other questions or comments related to the motion? I just want to call out Mr. Levine's comment specifically. We try to wordsmith this in advance to get everything in there, but it's, it, it could take forever. Um, but I do assure you that preservation of existing affordable housing is absolutely within our priorities, and we will be working with the legislature on those bills, just as we work with the legislature on the bills for new affordable housing. Any other comments? Will the clerk please call the votes? Councilmember Mark. Aye. Councilmember McConnell. Aye. Deputy Mayor Robertson. Aye. Count Councilmember Popey? Aye. Mayor Scully? Aye. Councilmember Roberts? Aye. All right. The motion passes unanimously, which brings us to study item 9A, which is a discussion of ordinance number 997 relating to the uh, update of transportation level of service and concurrency. And it looks like we have Ms. Walters as well as Ms. Brayland. In person? Up <laughs> <laughs> <Out> there. <laughs> It's, a, it's a pleasure to be here this evening to provide an update on the City of Shoreline's Transportation Currency Program. And as mentioned, I, Natasha Walters, am here with Kendra Breland from Fair and Piers. And Kendra is with me tonight because I will be providing a, a basic review of concurrency and the timeline for how we got to where we are today. And I'm going to ask Kendra to talk about some of the more technical aspects of shifting from a vehicular uh, level of service, concurrency to a multimodal, person-based. Uh, Kendra has been working as Fair and Pierce has been working across the state and in the region on doing this type of work, so we are very pleased to have her as part of our team.
Is that shared? So please hold on as we move to the next slide. Let's see, so right there. I did. One moment, please. Would you like me to share it from Yes, there? you want to drive? That would be great. We have a short agenda tonight, and we were wondering if anything <laughs> could go wrong to make it last forever. <laughs> okay, Sorry, I, I wondered worried. that. My fault. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just going to speak uh, without a slide here for a moment. Okay. So we have been working on updating our multimodal currency program since last year when we, thank you, when we updated our transportation element. And a focus of our transportation element is to shift to more multimodal mobility. So we developed multimodal level of service. We have bike level of service, we have ped pedestrian level of service, as well as vehicular. We also, we adopted that last year. Um, Earlier this year, the state developed a requirement for a multimodal concurrency program. We were kind of ahead of that. So this year, and with this ordinance, we're asking council to consider a multimodal concurrency approach, which supports our transportation element um, and the policies as well as state law. And we, thank you. Okay, so the first check is what we did last year with the adoption of the transportation element. Uh, earlier this year, we presented the draft program to the Planning Commission. We had a public hearing. We had no comments. And you have the recommendation as part of your council packet tonight on moving to the multimodal concurrency approach. Um, after discussion tonight, we will be back for adoption on December 11th. Next slide. Okay. Concurrency and review. This is in your staff report. Um, basically, by the State Growth Management Act, we're required to consider concurrency. Uh, it is required that transportation improvement strategies accommodate the impact of development may be made at the same time or concurrent with the development. And what we'll be talking about is we really want to make sure we have more supply than demand. And we'll be talking about how we're shifting how we define supply. And with that overview, I will be turning this over to Kendra to talk about our key terminology and how we're going to be using that moving forward. Great. Well, thank you. And thanks for talking. Yes, I think I'm good here. Um, so we want to start by defining some key terms that are really central to these topics. So first, vehicle level of service. So these are comp plan policies that measure how well the transportation um, system is performing um, based on the perspective of a vehicle, so I'm a driver, so how long you're waiting at a traffic light. It's a very traditional way of measuring level of service, and honestly, it's the way that Shoreline has tracked its level of service for many, many years. Um, as a part of your 2022 transportation element update, um, the city expanded the way that it's measuring its transportation system with multimodal level of service policies. Um, so these measure how well the transportation 
system is performing from the perspective of all modes. So not just drivers, but people who are walking, people who are biking, people who are accessing transit. So it's a much more holistic way and complete way of measuring your transportation system. We can go to the next slide. We've got a few more terms we want to present on. Um, so as Natasha mentioned, concurrency is a state requirement. Um, and really, the state requirement that new development does not cause level of service for public facilities to fall below the standards adopted in a jurisdiction's comp plan. So again, you've historically measured your level of service based on the perspective of a driver, how long you're waiting in a traffic light. Um, following the 2022 update of your transportation element, um, and some recent updates in state law, and we'll talk about those in a couple of slides here, um, we're recommending that you move forward with a multimodal concurrency. So that's an updated approach to concurrency that considers all modes. So again, being really consistent with your new transportation element. So under this approach, new development cannot generate more person trips than the city's multimodal transportation system can accommodate. Um, and we'll talk about how that's tracked. But generally, it's really tied to how you're approving new multimodal projects as a part of your six-year plan. So as you're adding projects in, those are giving you multimodal capacity. Um, and then the last term I really need to define here is person trips. So this is a single one-way journey by one person from an origin to a destination, regardless of mode. Um, so if we can go to the next slide, um, so just to kind of reiterate why multimodal concurrency. Um, so, you know, first of all, again, um, your current concurrency program is vehicular based um, and it's outdated, so it doesn't reflect city policy. Also, um, this past spring, state legislature passed House Bill 1181. Um, and that actually requires concurrency systems by all cities to go in that multimodal direction. So it's not just a recommendation any longer, it really is state law that's forcing us to move in that direction. And, and the great thing here in Shoreline is you guys are ready for that, you have all the policy direction. So it's just kind of continuing. And so there's two reasons, there's your internal driver and your state driver that's kind of pushing you towards multimodal concurrency. Um, so, City staff are now developing a multimodal concurrency system that'll align both with your updated transportation element policy, but also with state law. So if we go to the next slide, I just wanted to show you you're not alone. Uh, lots of, as I mentioned, state law is kind of encouraging or is requiring all cities to go in this direction. Um, city of Bellevue has gone in that direction. Lots of other cities, City of Bothell is currently chewing on this. Um, but again, there are, um, I think there's well over 10 multimodal concurrency programs in the state, um, and there are dozens of cities that are kind of moving in this direction right now, again, being pushed by HB 1181. Um, so if we go to the next slide, um, I just wanted to provide a little bit of discussion of how this program works. So first of all, it provides capacity for all types of multimodal infrastructure that's either built or funded. So as you can see on your slide on the left-hand side, the blue there, um, as you're funding transportation supply, as you're building new sidewalks, as you're building new bicycle facilities, as you're improving your intersections, vehicle capacity counts too. Um, these are all adding person trip capacity 
into your system. So as you're building the multimodal list that you've promised as a part of your transportation element, um, that's helping you build the capacity bank uh, um, of multimodal capacity to support your development. On the other side of the ledger is that demand side. So as the city is approving development, whether it's new commercial space, whether it's new homes, um, the, each of those development projects are generating person trips, which is using that capacity. And so this system purely tracks that you're keeping pace with growth by building new multimodal capacity. So um, this system assist, assesses concurrency on a pass-fail basis, and that's actually how it's, um, how kind of everyone does it. Um, and if available person trip capacity exceeds um, additional demands of new development, then concurrency is met. And so trips are accredited to proposed developments, so that's planned person trips, um, they need to be matched by proportionate investment projects that supply the system with a bank of trips to, grow, to, to draw upon, and that's um, allowed person trips. And so the last slide that I have here um, is just giving you a snapshot. We're working with city staff um, to really develop and kind of build out what that process is going to look like. Um, likely going to be kind of an Excel-based tracking system, but really, um, What's happening is that as developments, um, um, as development is approved, staffs entering kind of the characteristics of those projects in, so that you can track how many person trips are coming into your system, and as you, as a council, are approving new development, um, city staff will also be tracking the capacity of those projects um, as a part of your six-year capital improvement program. And so this allows the city to proactively track supply and demand over time to ensure that your concurrency standard is met. So with that, I think I'll pass it back to Natasha. Uh, thank you. So our next steps would be, actually different, uh, our next steps will be a action on the 11th. Um, and then as Kendra just uh, mentioned, we will be having a um, updated Excel, uh, probably an Excel spreadsheet and a program which will require training our staff on how to use the new concurrency program. Um, and we are targeting effective date for March 15th. And recommendations are for um, adoption of the proposed concurrency program to adjust our concurrency from vehicular based to person based or multimodal level concurrency and to make modifications to our code to reflect this. And we've mentioned the date already that this would be effective. And that concludes our presentation. Great, thank you. This is a study item, so are there questions or comments from council? Councilmember Popey. Thank you. I read about this uh, online before this, but so in the staff report, you mentioned that developers would now have to submit a concurrency standard analysis in addition to the application. Is that correct? That's in there, in the staff report. On top of that, you said the developer would have to pay for other improvements to meet the standard. And so I'm wondering, putting so much on the developer, that's one part. The second is, what if the developer meets the requirement for the initial stage, and then we approve everything, and then he starts developing, and then that's not keep to maintaining the concurrency 
plan or whatever it is. What happens to that? That's what I did not see in the report. Sure. Um, so first of all, and, and I might have to ask you to restate the second portion of that question, but to the first one, um, which let me see if I can restate and make sure I'm understanding your question. It, it sounds like your concern is that more is being asked of the developer today or uh, under the proposed program than is being asked of the developer today. Another developer today. So on page three of the staff report, the header is developers. So that's where the two bullets point bullet uh, two bullet points are listed. My Councilman Poby, my staff report has a variety of numbers, but we've got the eight A dash three. Eight A dash three, okay. Page three, yes. Okay. Background. So if, if I may, I'm going to read the staff report. Developers submit a concurrency analysis with their development proposal to show that the proposed development will not exceed the city's concurrency standards. Mm -hmm. Is that your first yeah. question? Mm -hmm. Is what it, How does that work? Uh, no, I'm not asking how does that work. Um, so the second point, it says, may be required, so in addition to that, to pay for road. Now it's two points. And I said, that's kind of burdening the developer to pay to do that. The second thing is, if I'm a developer, I will submit and do anything to get through it during the implementation phase or stage. What if the developer fails to keep to the concurrency standard? What is the next action that the city takes now that the project is already started? That's what I don't see in the report. Okay, may be required to pay for road improvements, school construction, or other concurrency improvements. Okay, sure. If Kendra, you want to respond to that? If you'd like me to jump in, we can. Yeah, so in terms of, I guess I'll tackle the, the second question first, which is basically what happens if they don't meet their commitment to providing concurrency. And I would say we've already had this situation come up and what comes into play is either a development agreement or a contribution to financial contribution to the project that the city implements, implements sorry, um, or some kind of combination there between. Um, so hopefully that answers your question. We have a few of, uh, well, at least one main example that I can think of off the top of my head where that's come into play. Um, and so we inherently would withhold um, either permits or a certificate of occupancy, depending on the case, uh, until the commitment is fulfilled, if that makes sense. So that's the second question. And I'm sorry, now I'm forgetting how to address the first, what, what was the first question? It's clear, the, the second part is fine. I can follow up with the, with the first one later on. I'll reach out to uh, city manager later, thank you. Okay. Councilman Roberts. Uh, thank you, and thank you for putting this together. I think this is a very good step um, as we're thinking about moving people, not motor vehicles. And so I think this is a good step forward for 
thinking about how we plan and design our roads. I do have a couple of questions. Um, the first question is, if concurrency is not met at, uh, at the beginning stage of a process, a project or it's recognized that concurrency is not met, how would the staff determine which element of the, I mean, of the, is not met? Whether it's not meeting the sidewalk and meeting standards for pedestrians, meeting the standard for, uh, for bicyclists, meeting the standard for motor vehicles. How do you, I mean, if concurrency is not, I mean, it seems like concurrency is, the way at least is, was described in the chart is, it's a raw number, how, how many people are being moved, but if it's not quite, how does the staff decide, okay, well, you need to do this project because the sidewalks are inadequate? Or, or, or there's, not enough, there's not enough capacity for people trips, but we, we as a city say, okay, you, to meet, meet that, you have to do more sidewalk improvement. That's a really good question. Um, so what I would say is the, in, the program is intentionally flexible. Um, so really the requirement is simply that you're building infrastructure to keep pace with the amount of development that's coming in. So I think you, know, you saw that chart where we're watching that those are in the same place. So we are leaving flexibility for you as a city to determine what transportation capital makes the most sense to build. We're not, we're, we're intentionally crafting this program to err on the side of flexibility such that you can put your money towards projects that maybe have other funding sources such that you can make your money go as far as possible. And you can address the needs that you as a city feel are the most urgent. Um, the program does intentionally, it, it does decouple things. So, you know, you could be in theory, developing in one area of the city and choose to fund or to to fund infrastructure in another place. That that is not prohibited by this type of program under concurrency purely. What I will say, and I think it's an important thing to reiterate, is that your city public works department still going to be reviewing development. They're still going to be making sure it's safe to the extent that an intersection is causing a problem. They still have the mechanism to be able to require additional improvements of development. So we're trying to move concurrency to be both multimodal and err on the side of flexibility for you without being overly cumbersome. So I hope that No, that makes sense question. and it's it's good. Confusing, but good. I mean, confusing from sort of to try to describe what's going on, but it's a good process. I mean, saying flexibility is a good way to answer that. Um, the second question is some of the code language that's being proposed here. Um, in uh, when it talks about adequate streets, uh, we talks about sort of the levels. It puts into the code level of service standards. It talks about level of service standards for sidewalks and. Then also some things about how to establish a complete pedestrian network and bicycle connection. Um, my first question is on the chart about sidewalks, it talks about standards for principal, minor, and collector arterials. It doesn't necessarily talk about, is this a design standard for any development would be, or is it changing the design standard for development? Because right now, if we, if a project it meet is, I think it's 50% of the new assessed value, it, you have to put in a sidewalk in regardless of where you are in the city, with limited exception. Um, 
is that changing when a sidewalk or frontage improvements have to be made by limiting this chart to saying only the, these standards apply to these street classifications? Start that? Well, I, I think there's still a requirement for frontage improvements to be made, and I can let, I can let Kendra Dinsky respond from there if you'd like. If you prefer, sorry, I, I don't mean to no, just jump in, but um, I, yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, I, I would say it's more akin to a design standard, and I would say there is some flexibility in terms of practicing um, context-sensitive design in certain locations, which would mean potentially you know, dipping below the, the standard set or, or above it in some cases too, um, if that makes sense in that particular area. But this, the requirement to put in frontage improvements is not changing. It's no. just design standards for these particular streets, for these types of streets. Yeah, I would, I would say what this is doing, correct. And I would say that what this is doing is bolstering our, our ability to require, if that makes sense. Um, it just gives us a little bit more leverage to, and furthermore, a measure by which we can say, you know, this is this is what we're shooting for and here's how we're gonna kind of measure our sidewalk network in our city. Um, when we have three foot sidewalks, we know that that's not adequate, for example, right. so. Okay, and so what it describes in two is there's a process to for developers to request a deviation and certainly i can see developer reasons why developers might ask for a deviation um but does this also grant the city does this provision grant the city to, the ability to ask for and request a deviation when we think about sort of sidewalk development, our communities talked about alternative designs for sidewalks. I mean, can you raise the level of the sidewalk to preserve tree roots? Um, are there, I mean, our community has come up with a variety of mm -hmm. uh, options. I mean, when we talk about um, furlands, I mean, we're talking about some, even something different than that. I mean, that's a, an arterial street currently. So. Does this, my, my question is, does the code allow the city to ask for particular deviations on a particular property or on a particular route? Or is this only something that the developer can ask for? I believe the intent is for the city to be able to exercise flexibility as well as needed. Um, I don't know if the city attorney wants to weigh in on their read of it, but. <laughs> I just accept we're in, determined and practical by city engineer the construction of sidewalks will be per standard is what we have in our our policy. Yeah. I, I apologize. If you can be closer to the mic, that, that particular mic is not the friendliest thing. Yeah. yeah, I'm reflecting on the policy, our pedestrian level of service policy that it says except when determined and practical, that's much better, by the city engineer construction of sidewalks will be per the design standards outlined. And then we have minimum sidewalk design standards. And Kendra talked about the context sensitive design that we consider during development. So, I mean, this is a design. Well, again, what I'm getting, hearing is that this is a design standard for all streets, but either the developer or the city can request deviations on a particular, for a particular development or for a particular segment, road segment. Correct. Okay, thank you. Other questions or comments? I just want to briefly say that I 
fully support going the direction of multimodal concurrence, so I'm glad we're going this direction. Thank you. All right, thank you. I have some concerns, but it may be because I don't understand it. Okay. Um, so my, my concern is this. It, my, my understanding is that we are treating all the modes as equal in measuring person trips. So an extreme hypothetical that would satisfy concurrency is we build an 80-foot wide bike lane, and we say, gosh, we can move the whole city all at once. So therefore, we don't need any other modality. We've met our goal because we've got excess capacity in bike lanes. That, that extreme hypothetical will not happen, but I think we will see developers coming in and saying, we've got bike lanes and we've got wide sidewalks. We don't need to make roadway improvements. We've got person trips here. So is that an accurate statement of the program or are we separately measuring capacity for each mode and requiring that each mode have adequate capacity? You are accurate in your statement that all modes, all person trips are created equally yeah. uh, or are, are viewed equally. Um, what I would say though, in establishing that relationship, we look to the project list that was included in your 2022 transportation element. And we also look to the amount of growth that you were planning for and we've developed that relationship. And the program does look to, to count towards concurrency. One of two conditions need to exist. One needs to be on your 2022 transportation element, which I hope we all feel really good about those projects, or two, your, trans, your city transportation engineer needs to approve the project and say, yes, that is an acceptable alternative improvement that we do deem is providing capacity. And so I would say one of those two. So we don't have any, you know, and I know that hypothetical was just given as one, but, you know, in the case of something being an extreme departure, um, you as a city have the prerogative to say, no, this is, this is not an acceptable project for concurrency. Here's the things on our list. Let's, let's build some of these or let's find something that, that makes sense. So, so where, I'm not, where I'm not keeping up is you said at one point, and I'm quoting you back at you, but um, so I'll probably get it wrong. Um, you said we can still point to a single intersection and require improvements on, on that intersection. I'm not seeing how we can do that because if the overall standard is person trips, how can we say the vehicle capacity is inadequate and not have a developer come back and say, well, your code says it's person trips. How, 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 what's, the, how, what's the reconciliation of that? I can start with that, but I see Kendra's on screen, so I want to give her the yeah. chance to respond first. First, okay. Yeah, uh, our code also requires meeting vehicle level service standards. So part of what is difficult to probably tease out of, of the staff report is the fact that we don't have really great tools for measuring, quantitatively measuring pedestrian or bicycle facilities like we do for vehicle facilities. And so they're a bit different in the way we treat them, which is why they all get lumped together in a sort of person trip bank account, which is how we're addressing the sidewalk and the bike and the other stuff. But when it comes to vehicle concurrency, we still have a level of service standard that is codified and that we can measure developments against. And so any large scale redevelopment project is still required to submit a TIA, a transportation impact analysis. And if they are showing that they're failing the level of service standard, we can still require improvements in that, in that regard. All right, so, so subsection 1A, I'm looking at 8A-17, says we have to have LOSE and intersecting arterials within King County uh, yep. countywide centers. And so the response is, yeah, you've got a bajillion person trips, but you're going to be at F. 
therefore we have to improve the intersection. That, that's the circumstance where we can point to the code and say, you still must do this specific yep. improvement. Right. Yep. Um, this seems risky to me, but I agree completely with the general sentiment that just counting vehicle trips is inaccurate. I'm concerned, especially because I agree with Ms. Dedinsky, that we can't really count pedestrian capacity or bicycle capacity in a realistic way. So, you know, I regret supporting um, going away from ground floor retail as an experiment years and years ago. And I hope this isn't something that sounds good on paper, but ends up being difficult to work. But I, I, I'm inclined to support it. One exception on a detail that I, that I want to talk about now. Um, I want to thank Ms. Russell for her comments. That's why we have public comment, because I hadn't even caught that section there. And I'm really hoping we rethink sidewalk design. Some of the ones we've been building lately, to me, miss the mark. And the one I'm thinking about specifically is the one in Richmond Beach, where we were originally going to do it 10 feet wide. We then shrunk it down to eight, but we didn't put any trees there. And so we've, got, we've made a heat island. We've got this giant highway that does move people. It moves large group of people. It's great. But we could have trees on it as well. And what I worry about here is with an eight feet minimum sidewalk width, a five feet amenity zone, if you really get to 13 feet, that's great. But there's the deviation possibility. Construction is impractical. And I think every dang developer is going to say this is impractical. And the answer from county or from city staff will be yes. So you, need, you can shrink the amenity zone. And we're going to lose the ability to increase tree cover on our streets, which is what I'm hoping we do, rather than just not reduce it. So I, I want to see some language in there that addresses the requirement that tree planting opportunities be present unless they're impractical and possible. I'd like that at the same level of importance as the width and to put some more flexibility on the width. Because eight feet is great, but ADA, as I understand it, is, is four or five. And so we don't have to have that wide. I disagree with Ms. Russell's comments in that I think it is a good thing if we get them that wide. And overall, the GHD emissions, I think, will probably be reduced by having wider, more accessible sidewalks. Mm -hmm. but not at the expense of everything else. So I'm hoping that we rework this to, to prioritize those other, those other things. All right, and that was about 500 words to get 30 words work done, but sorry. <laughs> Any other questions or comments? Okay, do you need anything else from us before you bring it back as an action item? No, I, I guess I, I'm looking at our city attorney. If we make a modification to the ordinance that has been in already um, recommended by commission, does that require going back to commission if we change the ordinance? Well, what would you be changing? If we're updating the code to reflect the amenity zone. I would... But typically, you only need to go back to the commission if the change is substantial. Okay. So that's the discretion we have. So that okay. would, a determination of whether that substantial would need to occur. Okay. So we'll, we'll clarify that. And Mayor, okay. did you want this to come back as consent or did you want? Um, I don't, I, I'm happy reading it and pulling it from consent if necessary. Does, does anyone else want to see it on action? Crit, Councilmember. I think with, with it, I'd like to see the amendment and. Okay. All right. Let's let's put it on a, as an action item. Okay. Thank you. All right. Anything else on this item? All right. Thank you very much. An excellent report, and uh, we are adjourned.